Take that! This is Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is a rebroadcast of an original episode first recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark, and I'm joined tonight with my father, as usual, Jeff Clark. G'day, Dad. How you going? Hi, Theo. Good, thanks. Okay. Uh, in the podcast, we're going to look at the fallacy simple-minded certitude. Okay, other terms and or related concepts, intransigence, studied, willful, implacable and or indefatigable ignorance, denial, bovine complacency, description. Simple-minded certitude is the preferred descriptor in this book for a habit of mind which is commonly labelled intransigence. Simple-minded certitude is an unshakable belief that will remain unchanged even when indisputable evidence is presented which convincingly demonstrates the belief to be false. Simple-minded is intended to convey the voluntary use of simplistic reasoning rather than an organic limitation of intellectual capacity. Otherwise intelligent individuals can choose to be simple-minded in their approach to a particular topic. It is a temptation to accuse someone of intransigence or simple-minded certitude simply because they disagree with us. But if this accusation should not be used lightly. If it is used too lightly, then its utility as a legitimate criticism is compromised. True simple-minded certitude occurs when an advocate has a characteristic mindset that simply refuses to entertain the possibility of being wrong on a matter of fact. Or the advocate, in effect rules out any possibility of being persuaded to another opinion, whatever the evidence presented by the opponent. Intransigent advocates are deaf to information which might disturb their state of comfortable, implacable ignorance. An example. Ramon Pustule and Debbie Pustule are getting to know each other after a whirlwind courtship and marriage. Debbie has just disclosed the fact that she would like to have three children. She also states... And if they ever get sick, I won't be taking them to the doctor. My iridologist is infallible. And when he treats me, my iris changes to confirm that I am cured. Ramon is somewhat alarmed at this and states mildly, But they use iris scanning now as a form of identification, like fingerprints. That wouldn't work if the iris changed, according to your state of health. Debbie bridles and loudly proclaims, I don't care what they claim to do. The iris is at all times an accurate reflection of every aspect of your health. End of story. Comment. Leaving aside the question whether or not iridology works, Debbie is exhibiting a defensive stance which indicates that she is preparing to enter a state of simple-minded certitude. Her initial statement above is extravagant and emphatic. It seems to be intransigent. If she continues in that vein, she would clearly be exhibiting the fallacy of simple-minded certitude. If, however, her statement is merely an immediate emotional overreaction, and she then becomes more open-minded and reasonable as the discussion proceeds, she is not fundamentally intransigent. In this case, Ramon's best strategy in the face of Debbie's apparent overreaction 
would be to respond with sweet reason. As a critical thinker, he would focus on the issue without raising the emotional temperature. His response should be mild and measured. He might think, Uh-oh, I've married a crazed rageaholic. But he wouldn't say it. He would say something like, Well, sweetheart, I'd like to look into it. It's a decision for both of us. We should always put the health of our children first. Pure, persistent, simple-minded certitude in the face of incontrovertible contrary evidence is a characteristic of the less reflective and intellectually respectable professions to be found in our community, such as clairvoyants and opinion columnists. Consider, for example, the common situation where an opinion columnist, who also happens to believe that he is a clairvoyant, sorry, I was laughing at that bit, expresses a prediction in the following form. If the government does X then Y will surely follow. In time, the government does X, but Y does not, in fact, follow. In such circumstances, the more opinionated opinion columnist is unlikely to admit error. He will characteristically dissemble, squirm, and avoid at all costs the admission, I was wrong. That was simple-minded certitude in the form of invincible ignorance, basically, uh, in the book. And we're not going to look at such an obvious examples of simple-minded certitude because they're obvious to spot and there's no real point about going on, going on about them at length. Uh, and a lot of those were pretty much what we covered in the WTF fallacy anyway, where people just... You, their their views are so crazy. It's just obviously what what's going on, and so that kind of simple mindedness is pretty obvious. What I'd like to look at uh, in this one is why some of the psychological reasons behind simple minded certitude, where people are not able to change their mind. And the two particular um, terms I'd like to use are ones of investment and rationalisation, and that's where. That's essentially we can even get quite clever people refusing to change their mind even in spite of obvious evidence. Investment where you've invested a lot of either time or money in a particular belief or your reputation in a particular belief, and so it's very difficult to change your mind about it. Uh, and then the rationalisation that goes behind that, so how you justify that to yourself um, outside of that belief system. I think it's, a, it's an occupational hazard of many academics and the social sciences because... They often spend decades, including maybe a PhD that took them five years, uh, in, in a particular theory of society, and uh, their thesis supported that theory, but then along comes a whole lot of other research that questions that. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's also known as cognitive dissonance, where those two propositions are too much in conflict. One Proposition one is they've spent many years of their life mastering a field, at great personal cost. And proposition two is that field was all bull****. Now, one of those propositions has to give, and the proposition that gives is that field is bull****. So they come to believe the field is, their, their interpretation of society is still correct, yeah. despite well, the evidence. Well, that, that, okay, well, those, that's exactly what these two different examples I've got are. The first... Um, Example I've got actually is again another one from uh, The Enemies of Reason by Richard Dawkins. Um, and he's asking a homeopath about um, uh, his beliefs and the evidence for it and so on. And this guy's also a qualified doctor. Uh, and you can hear in this example 
his rationalizations for it, um, what he counts as evidence and so on. But then the giveaway mark remark uh, is something that at the you'll hear right at the end of this clip. Now, in saying that, I did actually edit this a little bit to, so it would fit in with the show a bit better, with the podcast a bit better. So some of the ordering I've changed around, but obviously I'll put up a link to the original on YouTube and you can hear how it is in the original context. It doesn't change the... Uh, the meaning of anything he says it's just so the kind of the punchline, the the little the, where the cats uh, let out of the bag is at the end of the clip instead so let's have a listen to this clip from the enemies of reason part two but peter fisher clinical director of the hospital is a medically trained rheumatologist these are the, the homeopathic medicines that are in you know, daily use. This is one, you know, for instance, it has quite a strong evidence base, Ross which is poison ivy. Right, okay. I was impressed by the amount of time and care Peter Fisher devotes to each patient, far more than an ordinary doctor. Um, but in terms of the treatment, I would be, you know, reluctant to make a big change. I think this is the right stuff and we may need to fiddle around with it. Like a GP, Peter Fisher prescribes medicine. But in this case, the medicine is a bit of a surprise. Thank you very much. Good. Common salt, natrium muriatic and sodium chloride, again in an ultramolecular dilution. I mean, obviously, since it's common salt, I mean, she's obviously taking in a hell of a lot of common salt anyway. Yes, oh, sure. Um, how, sure. how does the one... Uh... <laughs> well, the truth is nobody knows. I don't know, nor does anybody else. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, the question is, do you think that because we don't know, because it seems implausible, it can't work? And that may be where you and I differ. Actually, the most recent problem was your skin, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, my hands have cleared up quite well. My scalp's a lot, lot better. While patients like these provide positive anecdotes for homeopathy, subjective stories are not enough for science. I want to pin down precisely what double-blind trials have been conducted. Over 100 have been done, some by me. On the whole, they're positive. And I have, you know, I, I've worked hard on it. Um, but in the face of great scepticism, in the face of many people who say, oh, well... We're not going to fund homeopathy. It's got to be a load of rubbish. Why do you think they say that if there really are controlled trials which... which well, I think you're, you're, you're a much better place to comment on because you're the sort of person who says that. Well, because I, I have read studies which have a sort of meta-analyses and things which suggest that, yes, occasionally there's a slight suggestion of something, maybe a slight suggestion there, but if you take the, all the studies that have been done, it doesn't add up in the way that... Well, I, I don't agree with that at all. Now, if a double-blind controlled trial really does show that it works, then that suggests we're dealing with an entirely new force of physics, something unknown to science. Well, I think there's a slight exaggeration. I mean, there are, there are various hypotheses. Remarkably, nobody knows what the structure of liquid water is. So there is, there is room, you know, for, for a phenomenon analogous to, I'm not saying the same, but analogous to the storage of information by a, a magnetic medium, by a floppy disk or a video. Yes. If I were a doctor doing what you do, and was convinced that it really worked. I would, I would drop everything and really, really try to demonstrate it and, and win the Nobel Prize for physics, and it would be an astonishing, totally astonishing fact. That's, uh, to be honest, one of the main reasons I got into it. Plain ambition got me into it in the first place. But I agree, it would be nice to see, you know, a really serious programme of research done, done on it. Well, it, you're saying it has been done. And well, no, I'm saying that quite a lot of research ha has been done, it's, I don't claim it's conclusive. Well, why, why not? I mean, it sounds as though... Well, because it's very diffuse. And, of course, 
it does depend what question you're asking. You know, are you saying, does it benefit people? Do people feel better? And I think actually there's, there's no doubt about that, that people who, who go to homeopathic hospitals who have homeopathic treatment do feel better. But, of course, you will say that's all because you're nice to them. This is all rather contradictory, so let's be clear about the latest evidence. In 2005, the medical journal The Lancet surveyed all the meta-analyses, the analyses of the analyses, and failed to find any reliable effect of homeopathy. Tellingly, for me, in the bigger trials, less prone to chance anomalies, homeopathy was more likely to show zero demonstrable effect. I want to know how someone highly qualified in real medicine can make such a leap of faith. I agree there is a plausibility problem. You know, and I pinch myself from time to time. I quite regularly pinch myself. You know, is this really happening? You know, the fact is I couldn't stop what I do now, even if I wanted to. My patients wouldn't let me. They say it helped. Okay, so a couple of obvious points there. I mean, the giveaway in terms of uh, the investment is right at the very end when he says, you know, I couldn't even stop if I wanted to because his patients wouldn't let him. And the giveaway there is, well, exactly, he's made up a business out of this whole uh, thing. Um, that's his career. And so it would, for him to stop would be almost impossible. Um, I can't see how he could even think of stopping besides starting an entirely new career. I mean, if he's a qualified doctor, I suppose he could just keep continuing doing normal medicine. But he's built his entire career and reputation on this area, and so to stop would take massive courage and or... You know, just be, uh, he'd have to have other options that were obvious to him. And when you see, I mean, he's, you know, he's in his 40s, 50s, so that would be a pretty big change in life to take at that, at that point in your life as well. Yeah, I, I, having heard it for the first time, I, I felt he almost made an admission that, um, it could be total bunk because, you know, he did say that his patients would insist on him continuing the practice. Um, as you point out, and I think that was the most telling comment because uh, yeah, that's why I put it, it at the end. In in the face of Dawkins' uh, scepticism, um, it, it's basically, I mean, you hear the same rationalisation with people that um, that make all sorts of claims for shampoos or um, body lotions or ageing creams and so on. Um, they publicise the product by saying. Mrs. So-and-so of, of uh, Bulamakanka swears by it and, and they give a quote from somebody, somebody who's either been paid or not paid for an endorsement. And it's all anecdotal. The other interesting thing there is all the different rationalisations. And so he's, you can hear him rationalising how it could work and he's trying to come up with, you know, that we don't know the structure of water, blah, blah, blah. So there's a gap in knowledge, therefore that must be where it works and so on. Um, and then Dawkins questions him harder and harder. And so as the conversation moves along, he starts backing down from the certainty of his claims and then begins to move the goalposts as well. And so he goes down from, you know, oh, there's studies have been done, we've got a research program, and then Dawkins says, well, quite rightly, you could win a Nobel Prize in physics if you could figure this stuff out. And then the guy says, well, well, yeah, that's why I got into it. And he says, well, why hasn't it happened? And he says, oh, we don't have the money, don't have this. And he said, hang on, you just said there was evidence for it, and now all of a sudden... He's not, and he's, oh, well, it's this, this, and that, and that. It's all the excuses to start coming out. So Yes, one, one possible reading is that it, he's actually descended into a burden of proof fallacy because yeah. um, when uh, Dawkins talks about, well, what's the mode of action, you know, 
there's no possible way we know from physics or anything else or any kind of science what mode of action there might be for these um, the eff efficacy of these vast dilutions. And then he says, well, you know, there are mysteries about the structure of water. People don't really know. He's basically saying, well, you physicists get along and get on and uh, mm. have a more careful look at water and the structure of water. Yeah, the argument. And, and we might just, yeah. So he's really saying, um, in the end, I, I don't have to prove it. I just use it. It works. Um, if you want to prove there's no mode of action, then go ahead and try and prove it. Well, that, that's the thing. I mean, I don't even get me started on it in terms of the lack of internal consistency within its own um, framework that it, that it supposedly works. I mean, even the whole, whole idea how it started where, okay, you take, say, poison ivy or whatever and it gives you some symptom and then so whatever illness you've got has, has the same symptom. If you keep doing dilutions and dilutions, that symptom goes away. And it's like, well, of course it does because you're giving yourself a lower and lower dose of whatever substance you started with. So it, it's just absurd. And then, of course, all water has had different chemicals in it being diluted. So why is it only the ones that they choose that have any effect? Um, oh, it's because it's the way they shake it. But then even if you think about the manufacture of it, I mean, some of these are meant to be happened 200 times. I'd love to go to a factory and see if they actually bothered doing that or if they just sell them a sugar pill. I think I'm putting money on there just selling them a sugar pill. Oh, Theo, this is the time, I think, publicly to make a confession to you. you. You've not heard of this, but you may find it surprising, but when I was much younger, I was very, very shy, and I had difficulty in talking to people, and I thought, well, if I adopt a home homeopathic kind of treatment for this difficulty, um, what I should do is, um, is increase the distance between myself and other people uh, to the point where I'm no longer shy. And then I'd turn around and look behind me, and there were... Crowds, crowds of people behind me, so I, I found it was very difficult to get the distances right. Yeah, 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 it is, it is. That's part of the problem with the whole the whole Listen, idea of it, yeah. Feel, feel free to delete that if you think it's just, just a, no, no, I'll keep a it vast in. non-secretor. <laughs> well, I keep the stuff that you say that's stupid, that stays in. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. My, my stupid stuff edited out. Yeah. Okay, just note that, folks, will you? And and you know, uh, you're, but you're basically my version of George Bush, so I will edit your stuff to make you sound really stupid. Look, I'm serial. I'm serial. <laughs> Man, bad pig is the problem. <laughs> I'm serial. Hi, I'm Alistair Tate, host of the new bi-weekly podcast, The Pseudo Scientists, the official podcast of the Young Australian Skeptics. Join Elliot Birch, Darley Breedis, Jason Ball, Jack Scanlon, Tay Rush and myself to hear what our generation have to say about quackery, science and the issues that concern us. Subscribe to our podcast located at youngozskeptics.com. Um, okay, anyway, let's move moving right along. Now, what I would like to now play is uh, a clip from, well, that's the exact opposite. Now, this is just an anecdote, and I wouldn't take it verbatim as this is what actually happened, you know, if you know about memory, etc., all that kind of stuff. But this is an anecdote Dawkins gives uh, in his other documentary series on religion, uh, The Root of All Evil, and it's about the scientific ideal. So again, you know, take this with a grain of salt, the actual anecdote, but it's just the, the whole mindset of doing science, uh, and it's and how you should, you, as a sceptic and as a critical thinker, what your mindset should be is that you're married to the process, not to the actual outcome. Um, and so when you're married to the, the thought processes and the thinking processes, you don't have that real problem of investment because the actual process of critical thinking and scepticism 
is is a um, inoculate you against that because those actual processes are well and truly tested. So something would have the logic of the entire world would have to change for these processes to not work. Um, and even if they did, because you're only interested in uh, improving the way you think, that wouldn't be a problem anyway. So uh, if, if I can a just cli- yeah, sorry. If I can just add to the listeners, um, it's the first time I've heard you state that as such um, so clearly, and I, I think that is the essence of critical thinking, that you, that you are committed to the process and you, are, you can therefore lightly let go of conclusions you previously reached in error because you're committed to process. Mm. Or not necessarily error, just new evidence comes along, so you go, oh, I yeah. change my mind, easy. You know, and then or or I didn't consider this other possibility, so I'll change my mind. Um, and I'm prepared to listen to someone's argument about something. So you believe that? Okay, show me the evidence, and I'll change my mind when the evidence, as long as it's you know good enough evidence. So anyway, I'll give you an example of the scientific ideal again, Dawkins, but this is from his other documentary series, The Root of All Evil. scientists know the things that they know about the world and the universe? How do we know, for instance, that the Earth is four and a half billion years old and that it orbits the sun that nourishes it? How do we know that these dinosaurs are hundreds of millions of years old? The answer is evidence. Tons and tons of mutually supporting evidence. Science is about testing comparing and corroborating this mass of evidence and using it to update old theories of how things work. I do remember one formative influence in my undergraduate life. There was an elderly professor in my department who had been passionately keen on a particular theory for a number of years. And one day an American visiting researcher came and he completely and utterly disproved our old man's hypothesis. The old man strode to the front, shook his hand and said, My dear fellow, I wish to thank you. I have been wrong these 15 years. And we all clapped our hands raw. That was the scientific ideal of somebody who had a a lot invested, a lifetime almost invested into theory. And he was rejoicing that he had been shown wrong and that scientific truth had been advanced. Okay, so again, Dawkins in The Root of All Evil, and so, you know, obviously you take that with a bit of a grain of salt, that anecdote, but it does just outline what the scientific ideal is, where you are prepared to change your mind, because that's how science works. The the evidence comes along, and so you change your mind on the theory. You don't change it straight away. You ask for more evidence, and you see if, you know, the evidence all weighs up and still fits in with what you already know, or if what you already know gets overthrown, that's fine as well, but uh, it's about I, the evidence. I'm, sorry, Theo, I may just had something myself. Um, uh, you made the throwaway comment, which, which was also in my mind, but I think um, the great god of uh, rationalism, Dawkins, may be indulging in a bit of false attribution there because he doesn't name the professor or the visiting professor and uh, whenever he gives that anecdote, he doesn't actually tie it back to any particular individuals and so on. So although I can see what he's saying, um, I am inherently just distrustful of those kinds of anecdotes. That's right. Oh, yeah. I, I, would, I would guess that something like that happened, but 
you know, they get blown out into, uh, to, to, you know, humans are storytelling animals, so we exaggerate our stories and over time they become less reliable, etc. So absolutely, yeah, very vague. But that's not the point of the story. The point is that that should be what you aspire to when you do science or if you're a truth, uh, if you're a seeker after truth, that's what you aspire to. Um, and that's where, you know, again, if you think about, I can think of, you know, most most stories that you hear that uh, become urban myths have a grain of truth in them. They get over-exaggerated over time. And I would put that on par with that. Um, the, very the unlikely. Thing that, the thing that sounds most implausible to me is the undergraduates clapping their hands, hands raw. raw yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think they just say, oh, this old fool's been teaching us the wrong stuff for the last 15 years. And or they will go into a lecture. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... That's the other implausible feature of the whole thing. It, it, yeah. Well, and also it would be at a conference, not in a um, very rare visiting professor would come along and to a lecture theatre, an undergraduate or whatever, or even postgraduate, and give a lecture. It'll be overthrowing the other guy's theory. It'll be a bit a conference of some sort too, as well. So, yeah. but yeah, I mean that that's besides the point. It, the point is that that's the ideal you should strive for, where you don't you're hung up in the the process of doing it, but the outcome doesn't bother you too much either way. Obviously, in real life, that doesn't happen um, for most people. It's very difficult to let go. But if the evidence is good enough, over time you'll give up. Uh, I don't know about if Fred Hoyle still is, is he even still alive in the Big Bang, if he ever thought that changed his mind on that. I know Einstein pretty much refused to believe in quantum mechanics because um, he just couldn't handle it. So there are examples where people found it very difficult to um, change their mind in spite of the evidence. Uh, but... You know, well, you, you also need to remember that Isaac Newton, who is my personal scientific hero, was also a bit flaky. Well, well, he was he was um, uh, he attempted to claim something was done by him exclusively. It was done by another mathematician. Oh, Leibniz and calculus. Yeah. Um, and also, um, he too, was yeah. was an al- alchemist and um, engaged in various nefarious practices and so on, but. In, in terms of his science, uh, he, he's a great hero of mine, um, principally because he he did things that I know I could never do. Yeah, and Principia is the, one of the greatest books ever written uh, on par with Origin of the Species. Speaking of which, I, we don't, I'm very slack. I never um, bother putting a date in our podcast, but coming up, of course, is Darwin's uh, 200th birthday on February 12. Um, so happy birthday to Chuck D. Um, and... I'm going to actually make a cake for morning tea at work. I don't make cakes very often, but I thought for Darwin I'd, I'd be prepared to do it. Um, and the other thing, uh, well, I'll come back to some more stuff like that at the end of the podcast um, because what I'd like to do now uh, is to... We met with uh, one of Dad's colleagues, now retired, Jeff Orr, uh, for a discussion along this similar vein, but in particular looking at academics and their own type of investment and rationalisation. So we'll go to that discussion now. It starts um, just, just out and about and having lunch with my father, Jeff Clark, and we're also joined by another uh, retired academic in education, Jeff Orr. G'day, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, sir. And... We thought we'd just have a quick... What about me? You haven't said good day to me. Well, <laughs> I, I, winked, I winked at you, but that's, you know... Okay. Uh, you can't see that. Uh, you can't hear my winks. Now, what we thought we'd continue on from looking at simple-minded certitude, we actually discuss a little bit how relatively intelligent people, and I use the word advisedly, uh, main, hold, steadfastly hold on to 
quite simple beliefs in, in light of new evidence and how they rationalise their own thinking. And, and certainly my experience uh, as an undergraduate and then also doing some lecturing at Sony University is that quite often you get academics, and I don't want to generalise, but certainly in my experience of doing a Bachelor of Education in that area where they have their own little pet theories and they'll rationalise, they'll do their research however they need to to make sure that, that what they believe is shown to be true. Well, I, I have a confession. Uh, I, I can say a lot of things about other academics, but I also have done, have done that myself. For um, years, I felt that the, the construct of self-esteem was very important in teaching, and so yeah. I actively taught my students about uh, approaches to bolstering self-esteem, improving self-esteem, esteem and so on. And I, I wasn't looking at the research. I had just formed a view, and I was just teaching that way. It, because it made logical sense, and I'd seen it work. But then somebody put me onto the research about um, a, di- a different construct, resilience. And I started to think that just simple-mindedly uh, teaching to improve self-esteem as such could have unfortunate consequences because... Uh, you might, in fact, be raising the self-esteem of individuals without actually linking it to performance. Yep. So you, you, you would see people happily failing subjects, happily um, dropping out of school, um, happily living on the street, in a sense. Um, their self-esteem not affected. They just accepted that as part of their lifestyle. Resilience is a concept where... Um, it's possible to bounce back. Some people do it naturally, others can be taught how to do it. Yeah. And I just found that a more useful construct after a while. And I, I probably spent about five years teaching wrong, wrong-headed notions to my students about self-esteem. Yeah. You, you made the point about academics holding on to, uh, to views. Yeah. And... Uh, I think there are two reasons for that. One is that uh, many academics are reluctant to even admit the fact that they could be wrong or that their view is at least questionable. Um, And the second thing is, you also mentioned, Theo, that uh, they've they've done their research, etc., etc. I think you have to then say, well, okay, let's look at the quality of research and uh, what have you actually done in researching an issue or the issue at hand. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that uh, much of what happens in, in the classroom um, is, is highly questionable, uh, at least from the point of view of the, the academic or the lecturer. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, what I've found is that certainly I can't say the same for the hard sciences, but I imagine it happens there too. It's, probably, it's very difficult when you have a lot of investment in a particular idea or theory. Mm and you're interested in the actual outcome of the idea or theory, not the thought processes that go into coming up with that idea or theory, then it's very difficult to let go. So where science is quite good, relatively speaking, is is interested in the process of doing science and, and how you can establish whether something's true or not, not in the outcome of that. Now, again, of course, you get individuals who can't do that, but overall science does try to do that. So, And I think that's what philosophy should aim to do as well. And, and then what we've certainly taught with critical thinking skills is not so much being hung up on the outcome of your inquiry, just be hung up on the process of the inquiry. Sure, sure. And I don't know sure. that that's something that gets taught 
uh, to undergraduate students. Yeah. I, I, in, in my studies in education, I've, I don't really think I came across that at all. Um, a couple of times, maybe with a couple of different academics here and there. Mm. I did uh, undergraduate in science, technology and society, which is basically philosophy, and then I came across that a lot more. Um, again, not all the time, but I definitely came across it a lot more. Uh, there are certain areas within that, certainly in science, like environmental studies, looking about environmental sustainability and the impacts on poor people with science that I found was quite a lot more ideologically driven. But, you know, when I did, say, just straight philosophy of science and when I did uh, looking at some of the history of science stuff, that was definitely embedded in what you did. And it was taught quite well. But which brings me to the next point. What I did in preparation of this, I went to the three of our local university websites, the Griffith University website, the Queensland University of Technology and the University of Queensland website. And they all talk about having one of the, the generic skills of graduate students as being critical thinking. And you go to almost any school website, it'll say the same thing too. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, they then do, a lot of them go on to say what that means about asking questions and all that kind of stuff, which is great. But do they actually then follow up with any actual measurable teaching of that, any explicit teaching of that? And again, I think a lot of them would claim that it's embedded in what they do, but I certainly haven't seen that much evidence of that. And I don't even know that embedding it is enough anyway. I think some things have to be explicitly taught. Like, like the rules of grammar have to be explicitly yeah. taught. Yeah. Uh, the argument one time was that uh, the teaching of, say, Year 12 English, grammar, oh, that would come out in the wash. Yeah. And, of course, it doesn't. Uh, some of the brighter kids might, uh, might do well just as a matter of chance. But uh, harkening back to what you were saying before about, about uh, outcomes and processes, um, if, if, the, if the processes are strong, then the, the outcomes should more or less look after themselves. Should be strong too, that's right, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, really, it's really a falsification to, to focus on outcomes per se, and as you say, Theo, by, and it's just maybe ignoring processes. Yeah. Um, I think that thing with grammar is quite a good point because it should be embedded in what you do but it also needs to be explicitly taught. Because if you just explicitly teach it by itself, then students don't see the relevance or the point of it. But if it's embedded and taught explicitly, then you can see both, because that's a reinforcing thing. So it's it, like... It, it's also... I, I, I think it's the most interesting word, grammar, because, in a way, there's a grammar of argument yeah. as well as a grammar of English. So what we're doing with our, with our critical thinking um, and, and looking at fallacies is we're looking at... Um, Errors in the grammar of logic. Yeah. Um, so grammar's a, uh, grammar's a worthwhile term to resurrect in that context. I think it's um, um, it's sneered as a word. It's often put in uh, fright quotes when people refer to it, particularly English teachers. Well, I think syntax is a gene- is a general term for like there is syntax in logical arguments. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, the structure of arguments. No, that's right. But. Say without, you know, teaching fallacies to students. Now, if the only contact they get with it in what is in one course, then it's going to have limited value. You might get a couple that run with it, but apart from that, that's it. And so if they don't have that throughout the rest of their studies where they're able to apply those, looking for that kind of reasoning, say, well, this, is a, this argument this person made is, is not right because they've made a false dichotomy or whatever. So if they don't get to reuse those skills, then, you know, and so unless they have that in, intrinsic motivation to do that, then... Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to die. It's going to die. So, it does need to be embedded. But if it's not taught explicitly, then you can't do it properly. It's just not possible. 
Well, the, the other thing is, students really have the self-confidence um, to contradict a, uh, an academic who they know is mounting a false argument. Yeah. So, just, just supposing they, they did our course and they were equipped with these um, uh, the, the, the syntax of, of error in argument, and they then go and do another course and the lecturer is pontificating on a favourite topic which has never been challenged by anyone. Uh, not not another author, because uh, this lecturer publishes in the same journals as yep. like-minded people. They never attend conferences where there's uh, uh, forums, genuine forums, to test ideas. They never debate the topic. Um, it's always one-way communication of some kind of holy writ. Now, a student uh, lacks the power, the authority, often to challenge... Uh, stupid statements when yeah. made, to them, made to them by lecturers. So I think um, it, it can only work its way through the system in a gradual way. Go, going outside their, compass, their comfort zone normally involves two domains. One is publication, yeah. and the other is, say, conference proceedings. And probably the academics that Jeff's talking about will do neither, yeah. because that's where they're going to be found out. There's, a, I think, a sense of, of comfortableness in, in pontificating in the lecture room, which is relatively a, a secure enclave, but go beyond that and, and they're found out very quickly. Well, not even necessarily that, in that some, like Dad was saying, those journals, depends what journal they're publishing in, because some of them have that, that group think going on anyway and so so peer review is only as good as your peers are sure. and, and so certainly in education do I think there you, do, you can get that group think where you know there's particular journals that have a particular bias and view and you know you'll get published there and generally speaking people just accept it and go yeah that's great what you're doing and so on and I can definitely think of a particular study that I may have been the subject of that fell into that particular category so no one accidentally call me fat um <laughs> because it's a really stupid name. <laughs> yes, uh, that was most remarkable. What I'd like to see happen is people actually start deciding, okay, we're, we claim we teach critical thinking. Well, let's have a course in first or second year, maybe even second year, on critical thinking that actually does teach what it says mm. and then make sure that explicitly those kind of tools are then emphasised to be taught throughout a degrees mm. program. Mm. But that would be revolutionary to do uh, that. So yeah, can I just suggest one thing, that you, one challenge that could be put to any of these universities that this critical thinking as an outcome? And that is, do you pre-test or your intake, the whole intake, on critical thinking skills and then post-test them yeah. at the end of the degree and see to what extent there's a difference? If not, why not? It's a simple question. Could readily be done, easily be done. If it isn't done, then the university is just about ret yeah, rhetoric mate, and appearance mate, yeah. and is not serious about critical thinking. No, and, and, sorry, yeah, yeah. no, I was just going to say that in, in the teaching of critical thinking, hopefully one, one result of that is that students have a, a genuine understanding of what... <clears throat> the merit is all about. Yeah. Um, as, as we know, we, we've been involved with the grading of papers and assignments, and students don't have a clue as to what a HD is, or a D, or a C, or a P might be. They want the highest grade imaginable, mm. 
but they really have no understanding of what a standard is. What a standard is, and the more critical the person is as a thinker, surely that's going to give them some start at least in understanding what quality visual well, grades are all about. In terms of yeah, whether you get a high distinction or a distinction and so on, people. One of the biggest comments you get from students regarding that is, oh, in my other subject I got this, or I tried really hard. I, I, I always resist saying the giant killer. When a student says to me, um, but I tried really hard, I tried really hard, it's always a temptation, I've never said it, I'd love to say, you tried really hard? Really? And this is all you can do? <laughs> no, I've hitherto resisted the temptation to say that, because... The implications are too obvious. I was, I was told last year by a coordinator to mark on potential. Forget, forget the main criteria, forget the, the serious problems in the piece of work. Yeah. Mark on potential. Now, what does that say about the person who gave that suggestion to me? There's potential that that person is retarded. That's certainly a part of it. Yeah, I mean, um, that, that's a WTF. It's like, that's so blindingly, obviously stupid. Yeah. I think I said to you in an email exchange, yeah. sweet, I'm going to hand in just a pricey of my, my PhD yeah. and say, can you mark it on potential? Yeah. yeah. As soon as, so as soon as your, your, PhD, your PhD thesis is accepted as being something you should pursue, they should just give it to you. They say, yeah, I'll get it done in the future. But the ac- academics who are prepared to, to read a paper and grade it appropriately are fast becoming a minor segment of university right. life. Well, the, the reason for that too is that there's no there's no downside for any student asking for a remark or reconsideration of grade because if there's any change, it's always upward. So students are never going to... I've never had a student come to me and say, I think you were too generous. I, I think you should reduce my mark. And yet, if they were genuine as a, as a body... That would happen 50% of the time. Yeah, as in you get to an essay back and you go, this was crap, I can't believe they gave me a distinction. Oi, mate, you screwed up, this is rubbish. Yeah. Um, so what happens is lecturers who are unsure of their own ability at lecturing and marking can remain hidden. Their incompetence can remain hidden for as long as they are overly generous with marks. All right. Okay, Jeff and Jeff. Thanks for joining me for lunch, and uh, I'll talk to you later, Jeff. And Jeff. Okay. One's Jeff with a G, one's Jeff with a G. Okay, see you, Jeff. Oh, and... That's right, yeah, it's my middle name. <laughs> That's been bloody confusing. And, and, but I'll also make sure I put up that cartoon of yours about um, the grades, because you've done one. I think it's on the website already. I think you did one about that, the grade, oh, yes. anyway, so... I was thinking when we were saying Jeff, Jeff, and Theo, Jeff, but uh, we should all be, we're all Australians, we should all be Bruce. Bruce, yeah, That Bruce, would save confusion. Yeah. Well, Going the, back to Monty Python, the, see you, Bruce. The, the that was a good, good talk, Bruce. School of Philosophy, yeah. University of Wollamaloo yeah. School of Philosophy. Okay, Bruce, see you later, Bruce. Rule number this one. This is Bruce signing out. <laughs>
with guests like Brian Dunning, Derek and Swoopy, Dr. Pamela Gay, Mark Mayer, James Randi, Ben Radford, Dr. Steve Novella, Dr. Carl Krasilniski, Dr. Eugenie Scott, Dr. Paul Willis, Dr. Phil Plate, and many more. You're guaranteed a good listen. The Skeptic Zone at www.skepticzone.tv Okay, so that was our discussion with Jeff Orr, uh, one of Dad's uh, colleagues or ex-colleagues. He's now retired. And so that's basically some ends up our podcast on simple-minded certitude. Schadenfreude. The guilty pleasures of humbug. But I would like to quickly discuss uh, one little bit of schadenfreude when it comes to this uh, because we haven't done a schadenfreude for a while and I know that's probably people's favourite section. It's one of mine. And I do engage in simple-minded certitude when it suits me on occasion. Uh, but mainly I engage, stick with it when I'm being... A, someone else is coming at me with simple-minded certitude. So there's no... Again, you're not going to realise you're not going to win. So um, that's when I even, I'll even come back with some really childish stuff like, oh, well, I know you are because you said it, stuff like that. Really childish stuff. And that just, again, irritates the hell out of people. Uh, and that's pretty much why I do it. Um, I'll, it's certainly an argument. Uh, he he also like did that. it yeah. growing up, people. He was a, he was a terrible teenager. I yeah. guess so he's matured since. But, uh, yes, he, he developed those sort of skills. Of um, it, it was just insolence towards parents and everybody yeah, really well. around him. But it was done in a really nice way, in a very, very clever way. You had to admire him for it and not just get angry. Uh, so uh, sh- shall we give out... One of our easiest and most simple ones uh, so that it becomes commonplace. I, I think we should because that would force me to think further. But the one that to me is the easiest to do and uh, stops the other person in their tracks, whether they're employing sim- simple minded certitude or not, is you just say, it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that at all. And if you just say that, um, they start to try and think about what you mean by that statement. It sounds devastating, but in fact there's nothing behind it at all. Uh, but um, I, I, now that I've disclosed it, I, I fear it may become fairly commonplace. Well, I actually think you've disclosed that one already in a previous Schadenfreude on a previous podcast, actually. That doesn't hear me... It doesn't surprise me at all to hear you say that. It doesn't surprise are. me at all either. It's just the sort of thing you'd say if I hadn't disclosed no, it previously, crap. just to undermine me. And just make me feel more and more awkward. And I know you'll edit this, so it makes you appear... You're still there, you're gone. <laughs> Drop down, you bastard. Alright, yeah, so only one other thing I wanted to mention. Uh, if you're listening to this before Friday the 13th, feel free to join me in conducting bad luck experiments on yourself. Uh, if you're on Facebook, I've even created an event for that. So if you look on the website, there's a link to it for, uh, from www.skepticsfieldguide.net. I've even got a little video of how to break a mirror safely um, because I'm always interested in safety. We don't Bad luck, fine, but stupidity, no, we don't want any of that. Uh, I'll be conducting other experiments on myself as I always do on Friday the 13th, such as opening an umbrella indoors, walking under a ladder, knocking over salt. I always try to do it simultaneously, so I'm not sure whether that cancels out or not. But join in the fun of slaying superstitions on Friday the 13th. Um, and 
yeah, it's always good fun, and it's amazing the number of adults who get freaked out by it as well that actually believe this stuff. Uh, it it blows my mind that that actually worries people. You want to add anything? Oh no, no, not really. Um, it's good night. <laughs> good night. Okay, cool. Yeah, good night from me. And oh, I already thought. I already thought we we're not doing that anymore. We're going to come up with another one. Let's try and think of one now. Uh, Sarah, so could I just say that um, how much I appreciate Jeff for being part of our discussion and what a wonderful colleague he's been over the years. He's a man of intelligence oh, yeah, and integrity, and uh, I, I just um, I, I was just so glad that I Don't had him on campus. Don't forget Guile and Cunning. Sorry. Don't forget guile and cunning. Yes, Don't guile, forget and, guile cunning. and cunning. Guile and cunning, definitely. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, it, was, it was good fun to talk to him as well. So yeah, and I, I've got another interview lined up with any luck that should be uh, with somebody else for. Uh, oh, I nearly forgot the most important thing, which is uh, in the next. Uh, we're probably going to start podcasting now, uh, putting out a podcast every fortnight um, instead of every week. Uh, because I'm getting pretty damn busy at work at the moment, um, and I'm also involved is need to get some research on doing off the ground properly. And you know, surprise, surprise, producing a podcast each week does take a lot of time. Um, not just finding material, but also you know, uh, mixing it and editing it and th- so on as well. Um, so we'll see how we go, but we're probably going to start only putting out a podcast fortnightly. So sorry to anyone who desperately wants to hear us every week. Uh, but obviously there are loads of great podcasts out there that I'm sure you're already listening to. Uh, so we'll, anyway, for the moment, this will be the next podcast after this one will probably be in a fortnight. Uh, I'll just add there that I'll commit to um, putting out a cartoon every fortnight too to link to our particular podcast. There are lots of cartoons on well, the website. You got that on, it's on record now. Okay, but I, I will commit to that. All right, good. Oh, you'll be committed. All right, so... Okay, so that's good night from me and good night from him. Oh, hang on. No, that was your one. I have to come up with my own one. Good night. Good night. Are you sure you want me to leave that in? I'll, oh, put, no. some, I'll put some effects on that. All right. All right. Do what you want. So that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book... Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net.